Welcome to the First Time Podcast. I'm your host, Tad. If this is your first time listening to the First Time Podcast, let me explain. Each episode, I recommend something new to my guest that they will experience for the first time. It could be a movie, TV show, book, literally anything they've never experienced before, and we talk about it. It's really that simple. Tonight, we return to the grimy streets of New York with my favorite guest, my wife, Nikki. How's it going? Um, good. <laughs> good to have you back. As uh, I say, you know, you're my favorite guest. You'll probably be my most recurring guest. Yeah, I'll, I'll be here. So tonight we're returning, like I said, to the Grimy Streets in New York for the second episode in our three-part episode episode series. Uh, and the first film we're talking about tonight is Death Wish 3. New York, a city pushed to the edge. People pushed to the limit, and no one's got the guts to stop them. It's collection time, Charlie. Three murders, four rapes, nine acts of random violence. This isn't a neighborhood, it's a war. But there is one way, one man who won't be pushed. Charles Bronson. What's the problem? Now you're going to die. It'll be just like before, Mr. Vigilante, with one important difference. You're going to work for me. People have got to start to fight back and hard. I sent them a message. That's him. I'll take care of him. Now he's in the middle of a war. See what you've done? You got me mad. In a world gone mad, there is only one law. His, Charles Bronson, Death Wish 3. Bronson's back in New York, bringing justice to the streets. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 3. Released in 1985, once again directed by Michael Winner, and once again starring Charles Bronson as Paul Kersey. We're back with Death Wish 3. We, we are. So what'd you think? Um, It was like similar to the other two, but like on steroids. Just balls to the wall, extreme, you know, everything you wanted in the first two. <laughs> it sort of depends on what you're looking for in these movies. Um, I would definitely say every movie uh, goes downhill in quality a little bit. Oh, yeah. But this is definitely, and so far in this series, the most action-y movie. The yeah. most typically action-y movie of the series. Yeah. Um, the story of this one changes a little bit. Like I said, we're back in New York. We sort of see Paul... Kersey arrive at the airport and he's there for a purpose we don't quite know what yet but we open with a scene where a bunch of gang members break into an old man's apartment yeah and like in his apartment building where he lives at right and they're just being the typical assholes that these gang members always are in these movies is obnoxious and violent for fun and wearing much. loud clothes and being... They, I mean, they look good. Yeah. Yeah. 
and they, like I said, they break into his apartment building, and they're clearly after somebody. Um, we see an old man that I don't think we've met. I don't know. He might have been in one of the first yeah. two movies, but I didn't recognize him. And he's he grabs a gun, I think, or a bat or something, and he's ready to defend his apartment. They break in his window. They kick in his door, and there's too many of them, so they just sort of push him down, and they beat the shit out of him. Mm-hmm. And that's when uh, Paul shows up, and he, well, actually, he shows up after they beat the hell out of him and left him for dead. He yeah, shows up. Yeah, all the neighbors hear him getting beat up, and they call the police, and when the police arrive, Paul's already in the apartment, and they just immediately assume that he's the one that did it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's... They they hear him screaming and hear it happening and, you know, all of his neighbors are sort of older or more traditional non-gang members, but they clearly live in a bad area. So they call the cops and, of course, the police take too long to show up and bad timing. They get there when Paul is sort of standing over the body and he's holding a weapon mm-hmm. and they assume, which, I mean... I can't really blame them too much because they show up and here's this guy standing over a dead body and no one else is around. Yeah, but it's just like, it's just so quick and like, he doesn't even like defend himself. He's just like, yeah, I'm, they're going to take me downtown. And yeah. So, here and, we go. Yeah. And um, you sort of know where it's going from there because, you know, these movies are about revenge. They arrest him, take him down. One of the police officers actually recognizes him as the vigilante killer. Mm, yeah. And like I said, this one was filmed in 1985, so you know we have another sort of sort of big gap, not the biggest gap like we had between one Death Wish one and two, but um, he's a little bit older in this one. They never once in this movie uh, even mentioned he's never seen at work. He's never. It's like they don't even mm-hmm. acknowledge that he's an architect yeah, in this movie. Right. So we he sort of just arrives there. They don't really explain until later that um, the the old man he was visiting was an old war buddy. They served together, I think. Um, but um, Paul, I think, was a um, what do they call him when you're you don't want to kill? You're like a I forget the name. There's a technical name for it, but um, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> There's a name for it's like a non something. I forget what it's called, but. Um, they serve together. It's an old friend. And so when he, he gets out of you know jail because he didn't do anything, they don't even read him his rights after they arrest him. They bring him in for questioning, don't have any evidence on him, realize that it wasn't him. Uh, they let him go, and he returns to the apartment building and meets up with an old friend there. And they mm-hmm. sort of go through his stuff, and that's sort of where we realize their connection. He sees some war memorabilia and pictures on the wall. Um we sort of get to know this character that died right away and Paul's relationship to him. So it sort of sets that sentimental value, why he would be out for revenge on this, these characters, these punks and new mm-hmm. thugs, this new gang. But again, they are treading on old stuff again. Yeah. Um, but this third movie, um, the first two were sort of more serious. This one, is definitely different because it was picked up by the Canon Pictures Group, and they were notorious for doing a lot more of the exploitation, grindhouse, um, 
Chuck Norris, shoot him up, blood and guts, ridiculous knockoff movies. So this one is definitely has that feel, even if they have Michael Winters back as the director, it still has the canon feel to it. Yeah, it's like these gang members are very exaggerated, um, just obnoxious people that they pretty much it seems like their motive is just to have a good time and be violent basically and um they're just picking on the people people in neighborhood neighborhood because they can kind of like showing authority um rebels without causes yeah they have it's like a a gang of like new wave punks yeah they have like matching face paint and it's the, done pretty well. Their leader is like the least intimidating dude. He's tall and very lean and thin. He's a ginger. Yeah, very um, gangly. But he has an opposite mohawk, a stripe shaved down mm-hmm. the middle of his head with the hair on the side, sort of like a mini Dr. Phil type thing. <laughs> um, and like Nikki said, he has. they all have matching face paint. Makes it easy for Paul to target them when he decides to start murdering them. Mm-hmm. Um one sort of like the first movie we see some uh someone not quite as famous as jeff goldblum was but um alex winter is a young gangster in this movie you might recognize him from bill and ted and the lost boys Mm -hmm. Uh, this was his first movie and i'll probably be mentioning him a lot during this podcast because he did a documentary called uh, i think it was like electric boogaloo the story of canon films and he talked a lot about his role in this movie and how much uh, filming it sucked, really. Um, he was originally set to play... Like, there was a, a scene in the movie where he was to assist in a rape scene. Like, he would be the one that was raping, and he wasn't comfortable with it. So he let another extra who didn't have any lines take that small part in the rape scene. And the extra was stoked to take it because he, he got some lines out of it and... Alex Winter was stoked that he didn't have to be the one raping hmm. a woman, but I think he Paul has a new lady in this one. He seems to have a new lady in almost yeah, all the movies. I'm not because the second movie ended with him and his lady, right? Um, I'm not sure. I'm I pretty sure like she's just gone and we don't know why. And then he he finds a new lady, and yeah, this one definitely doesn't feel like out of all the sequels it doesn't feel like it follows the storyline as direct like you could almost watch this one on its own if you had a general idea or you could almost skip part two to this one i'm not yeah i not sure it really goes back to the previous movies at all or much yeah i mean other than him being the vigilante and the police knowing his record um or one cop there's always one cop that knows and the rest are clueless Mm -hmm. but um like i said they're back in new york and so basically he decides he's going to take revenge on these guys um in the worst ways possible so he's he's sort of going out now he's just almost mean-spirited so he's He's doing little things like he goes out with a cannon camera on his shoulder waiting for one of the gang members to steal it like bait. And then he ends up blasting him as like a sign. And like he's not even like trying to be he's not really being sneaky as in like hiding like who he is. Like there's like people all over and he shoots shoots this guy and he dies and so many eyes are on him and just 
the neighborhood just celebrates because finally somebody stood up to this gang. So he doesn't even like everyone has his back. And, no one cares. And I think <laughs> I think that's sort of the idea in this one is that it mm-hmm. shows how bad this neighborhood is yeah. that um, you can go out and just blast people away in broad daylight. And it's, you know, this this whole area is almost like anarchy, like the police can't yes. do anything about it. And so, of course, the gang members try to reciprocate and come back. And so, unfortunately, you know, they start killing off his friends that live in the apartment building, too. Mm -hmm. Um, They, of course, end up paying for it. And Paul gets away because he's the tough guy. But, um, you know, he has a couple older friends that that live in there. He moves into his old friend's apartment, the one who died right at the beginning. He moves into his apartment. And it's, like, higher up in this building so he can look down at the gangster's and he has um, a, a Hispanic family that lives next door. The uh, female, the the mother, I guess, of the family or the wife of in the Hispanic family, she is getting a lot of grief and trouble from these gangsters. They mm-hmm. seem to harass her every time she steps out. He's sort of reckless about it. Like you said, he doesn't broad daylight, but he's also sending a signal, like sending a message to the gang like, you, I killed one of your members, leaves them yeah. out for dead, like, don't fuck with me. But, of course, they're a gang, so they're not going to let that happen, mm-hmm. so they fuck with him. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of just a back-and-forth battle to the point where it builds up and builds up, and then it goes full on Death Wish 3. And um, <laughs> we find out, you know, his, his his other buddy that lives in the apartment building's like, hey, you know, our dead friend had two ridiculous machine guns and like a rocket launcher in his closet <laughs> from the war because apparently you can just bring home weapons from the war bring home his souvenirs yeah and um you know they decide to use that his his actually you know paul is actually pretty smart in this and he's like no we don't need to use that it's too much power um but then his friend tries to use one in an instance where the gang like, Paul gets taken into protective custody. They think that, you know, the mm. gang's after him, so they arrest him to protect himself. Of course, he breaks out and gets out. But in that, in the meantime, his older buddy, his older war friend, um, gets in that closet, grabs one of the guns, and is using it, but it jams up, and it doesn't work. So, of course, there's a lapse, a little bit of gap in there in that time, and that's all it takes for the gangsters to swarm and, and beat him, and they pull him over the railing. Mm-hmm. This movie has so many people falling over railings. Yeah, like... Falling off buildings. There's a lot of stunt doubles falling everywhere off buildings on fire escapes um pretty much anyone get that gets shot has to fall to their death <laughs> right yeah everybody like if you get grazed in the arm of the bullet you fall nine stories would, off the top i would like to go back and count how many people fall just you know yeah and like this movie takes place in new york but was filmed mostly in london I believe. And um, yeah, apart from some establishing shots in New York at the beginning, the film was mostly shot in London, England with the old Lambeth hospital being used as a police station and jail. Um, Charles Bronson used a wide, wildly wildy. I don't know. um, Mm -hmm. I'm not a gun person, but people are probably going to be yelling at me if I have any gun enthusiasts listening. Used a 0.47 Magnum hand cannon in this movie And it was his personal handgun in real life. And he suggested it as a means to make the film unique. 
in a 2005 interview in American Handgunner magazine with uh, Wildy Moore, the gun's creator and technical consultant on the movie. He said that sales for the weapon increase every time this movie is aired on cable. He said, uh, to this day, there's a spike in wildly magnum sales every time Death Wish 3 appears on cable TV. So hmm. people watch this movie and they see that big, huge gun. Yeah. Because there's a point where he goes into the apartment and he's like, he keeps saying like, wild, my friend Wildly is showing up or something. Oh, Wildy. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he's like, who is that? When's he coming? When's he coming? Then he gets this box and he's like, here he is. And he opens it and it's this ridiculous handgun that's yeah. huge. It's like something that's not realistic to carry around but you know that's what makes this movie ridiculous is all the huge guns and explosions this wildy friend of yours you catch this guy well who's wildy you'll see Wildy's here. Fires a 475 Wildy Magnum. Real stopping power. Is that like a 44 Magnum? No, a 44 Magnum is a pistol cartridge. But a 475 Wildy Magnum is a shorter version of the African big game cartridge. Makes a real mess. There's 83 deaths in this movie. The body count is 83. Uh, yeah, I, I can believe it. Um. Uh, Charles Bronson was 64 when they filmed this. He was paid $1.5 of the $10 million budget to appear in this. Not bad. Yeah. There's a point where he also buys like an old car and uses it as bait. He, he buys a car, puts it out in the street knowing that the gangsters are going to try to steal it. And uh, then he approaches them, uses it as bait, yeah. Yeah, and then explodes the car. <laughs> Wait, is this the one where he just, like, walks up, shoots them, and then walks away? Yeah. <laughs> just casually. Yeah. Busted. Boom, boom. Anyway. Yeah. The, the first movie was very <laughs> beloved by critics. The second movie got a little more flack, and this one really, the critics really hated it. Um, they generally found nothing redeeming about this picture and the release was reportedly rushed into theaters to capitalize on a real 1984 subway vigilante shooting that took place in New York when four men attempted to mug Bernard Goetz. So this, this actual subway vigilante happened and Canon being Canon films is like, we got to get this movie out. They had already filmed it, but they needed to rush the release. So they rushed to open this movie in theaters and they didn't even bother doing color correction on the final print just to get it out quicker. Um, it grossed $10 million after its first 10 days of release because of the timing, I assume. So they capitalized on a real shooting and put that out, which uh, happens the other way now. It's like yeah. if a movie is related to like a school shooting or anything, yeah. they just completely... Uh, just don't they drop it or wait yeah so that's that's interesting yeah and um, like i said it's alex winter's first role he did not like working with michael winter um, in the documentary electric boogaloo the wild untold story of canon films he described the director michael winter as a pathologically brutal strange sadistic insecure egotistical character 
Um, and this was Michael Winner's last Death Wish movie. He directed the first three, and then after that he was done because of some of the things that were Charles Bronson and Alex Winter said in the media after they filmed it and how they didn't like working with him and how he was sort of an egomaniac and a mm -hmm. psychopath. So they decided, uh, you know, he decided, well, I just won't come back. He did a bunch of other films for Canon, but he didn't do another Death Wish movie after this. Um, Alex Winter also said Charles Bronson was a germaphobe and a health nut. And he had a Jaguar that would drive him from his dressing room to the set, which he said was about three, three feet away. <laughs> and he noted that it was more like watching a man golf than act. So even Bronson sort of had his own like egotistical hmm. tendencies on this movie. Um, sort of interesting to hear those things. You know, Alex Winter, like I said, he went on to become a much bigger star and said these things much later you know it's not like he came out right after the movie was made um just like anybody he was probably just doing it as a job and then mm -hmm. when he became famous he came out and told the stories about it but um i think this movie sort of ends in like a giant shootout after um paul actually he gets put in jail with the gang leader he makes an example of him embarrasses him the gang leader gets out of jail paul gets out of jail they go back you know back and forth a lot of shooting one by one the older is it the cop that he gangs up or teams up with during the end and they're like taking out the gang together? I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The cop is in like a suit and he's running around the streets yeah. shooting. They The uh, bad guys call like another biker gang. They show up. It's like a hundred people against two. Mm -hmm. But of course, um, you know, Paul has this machine gun with like a belt fed ammunition and his friends holding the cops like holding or i think maybe one of the friends is like holding the belts of bullets as they're just raining them on everybody um there's a point where the they're up in the apartment and the gang leader comes up and they shoot him and they think they've killed him but he's wearing a bulletproof vest and that's when he fakes that he's dead wakes back up and shoots um mm -hmm. paul's best friend and cursey shoots him with a fucking rocket launcher yeah <laughs> Like a literal like bazooka in an apartment in New York and like a grimy neighborhood shoots this guy and it's like a video game or something like they kill the boss bad guy and then the gang members all just run away and yeah and everybody applauds and it's over and it's like hooray celebrate yeah uh, like they like that's how you win a gang war you just take out the leader and then the rest are powerless Right, they all go back and get jobs and uh, <laughs> yes. wipe the face paint off and get normal haircuts yes. and, and start, you know, working in offices or something. Like, oh, we're free. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like a killing the head vampire. Yeah, that's what, I'm th that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, which, you know, Alex Winter, Lost Boys. Oh. There's a small connection there, but um, <laughs> it's just the logic of it so ridiculous. And they don't really, I, I mean, we just watched this the other night and I'm still... Just trying to even remember because the movies sort of blend together but he did have a girlfriend in this one because yeah. there's a point where he's driving and he stops in to grab something from a store i don't remember what it was but he comes out and the gang members like go up and they knock her out and then they put the car in the drive and and put it into like down a hill mm -hmm. and it drives down and every car on this film series if it has a fender bender it explodes into yeah, a fiery flame she, she started to go through an intersection and um collide with another car wasn't that serious like i'm sure she probably was 
fine until the car the cars exploded. It was very dramatic. Yeah, and I just there's a certain point in this series where you think Paul's just like I don't need to get involved with another woman because they keep getting killed. Yeah, like you would think. <laughs> it's almost selfish. I mean, I don't know. I guess at some point he's like, "Well, I'm not gonna have another one die," and then another one dies. Yeah, it's it's too bad. He's cursed. He should. He actually just shouldn't have like. Friends, neighbors, family, lovers, because they all end up getting, like, murdered and and or raped. So, yeah, he, and just should, he just should be, like, a lone wolf. And this is the movie out of the whole series that has, like, the biggest cult following. People absolutely love this hmm. one because it's over-the-top yeah. silly action. Um, all the, you know, 83 body count, that's, like, more than any slasher. Uh, just the amount of people that get murdered and wiped out with that machine gun, rocket launcher. I mean, there's explosions. It's it's probably the most fun in the series, I guess you would say, if you're into that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I would say this is definitely, you know, like I said, the, the fan favorite. You see a lot of merchandise for this one and people really celebrate it. And it's the first one that Canon did. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening Okay, well, I think that pretty much wraps up Death Wish 3. Mm-hmm. Um, anything, any other thoughts on that? Um, I kind I kind of see why it's a fan favorite out of the ones I've seen so far. I've seen the first four. Um, just, it's very, it's over the top and you don't really even have to pay close attention to the plot like most action movies. It's, you're kind of just there for, like, the ridiculous, you know, fight scenes and... Yeah, it feels like, like at this point in the series, they know what their audience wants, or they think they know what the audience wants, and they're just, it's fanfare. They're just giving them Charles Bronson shooting, Mm -hmm. shooting everybody. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that's Death Wish 3. Oh, and one more note, this, we talked about it in the first episode, but, um... This is the last one with the just normal three because they, you know, still thought that people didn't know how to read uh, Roman numerals. Oh, yeah. And then when uh, they get to four, I believe they start using them again. But um, this is the last one without a subtitle, like a um, a secondary title to it. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of cool things about this one. And uh, Canon made it ridiculous and fun and... um, as you can guess, our next movie that we're discussing would be Death Wish for The Crackdown. The Crackdown. Two kids looking for a new thrill. Hey, just like I promised. Yeah, sure. 
But this time, the thrill went too far. Crack has claimed another victim. Dealers are making up their own rules, and no one is able to stop them. Somebody has got to crack down. Who are you? Death. Charles Bronson in the biggest death wish ever. They have to be stopped, Cousy. Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Spent a small fortune buying information on the major drug dealers in Los Angeles. I'll handle this my own way, no interference from you. He's working to destroy the drug empire. It's a It's either him or us. Now, Bronson is their target. The trap is set. Here he comes. The fuse is lit. Bronson is unleashed. Charles Bronson, Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. All right, so Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, filmed in 1980, or released in 1987. Um, architect and vigilante Paul Kiersey takes on the members of a vicious Los Angeles drug cartel to stop the flow of drugs after his girlfriend's daughter dies from an overdose. So we're back in L.A. Every other movie, we go from New York to L.A. to New York mm -hmm. to L.A. He's once again an architect. Um, we see him architecting again in this one. <laughs> Uh, and it's actually pretty heavy in this movie compared to even the second one. Like they show a lot of him at work. Yeah, he's. But it's supposed to be. This is filmed, or this is like I said, released in '87, two years after Death Wish Three. But I think it's supposed to be further down the line because it's like he acts as if that was like so long ago when this stuff happened. Well, yeah. So. He's with a new woman and, again, again, and he. They said in the beginning that they've been together for two years, so so immediately after his last girlfriend burned alive in a vehicle, he decided to get another girl and settle down mm -hmm. with a serious relationship. And she has a daughter from a previous relationship, mm -hmm. teenage daughter. Um, but yeah, this movie is a lot different from the first three. Um, cause like the first thing, three, pretty much his, uh, enemies are these just street thug punks and this one he's fighting like a whole drug cartel and it is very different plot. Yeah. This one is definitely, I mean, it feels like they made a it's almost like they wrote a script for something else and then decided to call it death wish Four and somehow mm -hmm. tie him into it. And I think the three and four, they both had several drafts of scripts written because, uh, Charles Bronson didn't really like what they were doing, but they ended up on both of them going with the first, first, uh, idea that they came up with. Um, like I said, this one was 1987 and it was only a few years after three, but it's, another pretty big drop in quality i would say this is the first yeah. one that he's not going after teenagers uh or like like young punks he's going after adults mm -hmm. um and this one's pretty wild just because it takes such a big detour on the the series when you look back at the first movie where he did it because his wife and daughter were raped and he wasn't necessarily looking for trouble he was just looking to sort of stop some of these guys this one is like a huge crime thriller mm -hmm. um 
we meet him and his new lady and um her daughter you know we meet her too and it seems like his life is back to normal and everything's going good but we follow the daughter and her boyfriend to this arcade because that's where the bad people hang out and the drug dealer the local drug dealer gives her some crack or coke or something and just plain old cocaine like gives it as a gift and then the next scene she's in the hospital overdosing and Mm -hmm. i mean it's like wasn't even really insinuated that she she sort of seemed like she wasn't really using they don't show her use and then she overdoses so it's like could have been her first time right i don't know yeah she seemed like a very nice normal she she was a good kid that was hanging out with the wrong crowd and she should have known, you know, hanging out with Paul Kersey that you're going to die. Something bad's <laughs> going to happen to you because that's what happens to anybody related to him. And in, in any way, if you're his friend, you get blasted with a gun and raped and murdered. And uh, just, like I said, horrible things happen to mm-hmm. him. But this one's different. Like, so the daughter gets, dies from an overdose. The mom is, her reaction's not really that crazy for well, her. I- Like, when she's at the hospital, she looks more, like, disappointed. Like, seriously? She's overdosing? And then it gets a little bit better when she actually, like, dies. Like, she actually acts like... Has the appropriate reaction to her child dying. Right. And, you know, they... Of course, Paul is cool as a cucumber. And he, you know... Right before this actually goes down, she's, like, talking to him about committing... They're about to go out to a movie, and then they get a, po- yeah. a call from the police. Yeah, saved that, by the bell yeah. from commitment. Yeah, because she's, like, making him sit down and talk, have a, a conversation about commitment, and the police call to tell her that her daughter's in the it's hospital. Like, yeah, so he Got gets out, out of that. that one. Yeah, because <laughs> clearly he doesn't want to commit because every time he does, someone dies. He's kind of, like, rolling his eyes, like, why do you guys want to commitment? Women. Yeah. yeah. He can have any woman he wants. He's yeah. Paul Kiersey, the best architect in the world. Um, yeah, and so she dies. He, of course, wants to know why. They have the funeral, and uh, she's, like, blaming herself. And he and Paul pulls over and yells at her pretty much, like, don't do this. Like, mm-hmm. two days after she's dead, don't do this to yourself. Yeah, don't blame yourself. Which is true, but it's like, he almost is, like, mean about it, like, You'll never get over it. You'll never stop if you start blaming yourself. Um, it's like, why are you crying? I never cry. Right. He's a, he's a hard ass. But, um, of course, him being him, he goes to investigate, goes to the arcade, follows her boyfriend, He go, who happens to be going to the arcade. That's how he finds it. Um, boyfriend goes to the arcade, confronts the sort of drug dealer that gave his girlfriend the drugs. Um, they get in a fight. They go out back. Um, by the he, he threatens to turn in the drug dealer to the police for giving his girlfriend the coke and that's right when paul turns a corner and sees that his dead sort of daughter stepped it's sort of complicated it's mm-hmm. his girlfriend's daughter who was dead her boyfriend has just been murdered stabbed by this guy so he shoots at him they shoot back they have a, some gun play they climb up a roof he shoots him and he lands on the top cage of the bumper cars which electrocutes him yeah it was pretty wild yeah didn't know that could happen but apparently if you touch Mm -hmm. the top part of the bumper carts cage which is right next to a tall building you die you get electrocuted Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. no uh well i don't i 
it's believable believable because do you trust the carny rides that much no trust the safety like you think they're not gonna electrocute you to death but this seemed like a permanent (laughs) permanent carnival as opposed to like a traveling one that we're used to so I would think it'd be a little more safe. And like I told you, I would imagine if that was electrocuted, there would be like dead birds everywhere that yeah. land on that. But um, this is like such a small part of the movie because this plot gets so... Yeah, like this kind of like would have been like the end of the um, the end of the show if it wasn't for the next part where um, he gets a mysterious phone call. Yeah, he gets a phone call from a guy who tells him that he knows everything he gets actually gets a note under the door, then a phone call immediately as he's reading the note. It's like I know who you are. Yeah, a classic blackmail plot where I know everything about you, what you're doing, who you are, your whole history, and if you don't show up at my place at this time, I'm going to tell the cops. So he has no choice; he does it. And th- at this point, this is like the last we see of his lady until the very end. Um. Yeah, his lady works at a like a newspaper. Yeah. And she wants to do a story about drugs and, you know, inspired by her daughter that just passed away. Um, and, like, it's kind of weird because, like, the her boss was like, nobody wants to read a story about drugs. They're all doing drugs. Nobody cares about drugs. It's like, what? It's like, <laughs> okay. Like, this, this seems a little sketchy right off the bat. But she gets the okay to do some investigation about, like, the negative effects of drugs and, like, you know, what it's doing to the, you know, the classic drug reports. <laughs> right. And, like, they, they build it up like it's going to be, like, a subplot of the movie. Like, his lady's a reporter and she shows up at the arcade and she's talking to the sort of uh, head kingpin, the black guy who's uh, sort of selling drugs out in front of the arcade and she pretends that she wants some and then offers to pay him for some information. And then that plot goes nowhere. Like, yeah, it's like you, you kind of think that it was, I was kind of thinking it was going to be like a breaking bad Dexter kind of thing where like, she doesn't know her man is like this badass killer and she's going to be investigating the you know the cartel the you know the drugs on the street and then just they're gonna eventually yeah, run into, run each, into other. each other no i was disappointed it was nothing like that right because after <laughs> after she basically offers the head dude money to for information we don't really hear back from her until towards the end like i actually like asked um i asked you tad like did am i is she still in the story or like did i like fall asleep for a second it's like oh yeah she's a her like subplot just kind of disappeared but it comes back at the end yeah it doesn't really fucking matter really right i tried to yeah i tried to see if there was any information as if there was something that was deleted or like yeah cut from the movie but they were stupid and didn't pay attention they just were like they built this up basically to give him a reason but it didn't even really need a reason because he goes to this guy's house who has all the data or all the information on him and he's basically like i want to hire you to kill so now he's he's he wants he he plays with his little heartstrings because he's like ah, my daughter overdosed from cocaine and i know that you just went through the same thing and i want you 
to kill all these coke dealers. Yeah, so now Kersey's no longer a vigilante. He's like a hired uh, assassin yes. at this point. And this guy's clearly filthy rich, has a huge mansion, old white dude with white hair, um, you know, nice liquor, offering him nice liquor, sitting down. Clearly, you know, to him, to Paul, he's a professional, um, means business. He's going to do it. So what's Paul to do? He can't say no and then get, you know, everything taken away from him. Um, so he agrees to do it. And then the, the plot thickens even more because Paul basically goes in and he's supposed to be sort of killing these guys off from the gang members one by one. Mm -hmm. And he's pretty smart about it in the way that he kills people on both sides of it to convince the gangs that they're killing each other. Yeah. So he sets them up against each other from the inside, lets them think that the other gang is the one that's after them, and then he keeps setting them up like he, he sets up a meeting for them in a mutual place at like a an oil field and gets them that that's further down the story, but there's a there's a part in the movie where he's playing a bartender, a, like he's he works as a bartender at a at a gangster's birthday party. And the rival gang shows up and there's uh, some conflict and he's inside the house putting wire taps on all the phones and he witnesses a murder, like a stabbing. And surprisingly, the gangsters catch him and they're sort of, they don't kill him immediately. They're like, you know, help, help us carry out the body. He didn't see anything. Then they try to kill him. That's where he sort of, uh, he kills the dude that helped him carry out the body. Mm hmm hits him with a tire iron and um, escapes out of the party in his suit. So that's where they start to get suspicious. Like, my guys are dying. And so the the gangs start calling each other, and they're like, hey, my guys are dying. And the other gang's like, my guys are dying. Quit killing my guys. And they're like, quit mm -hmm. killing my guys. And it's all actually Paul Kersey killing all of them. Yes. Um, trying to think of any anything I'm missing in here, because it gets rather complicated. There's some point where... Um, like I said, he arranges a meeting between the two gangs in like an oil field. There, there's a point where we find out that the guy who hired him. Oh, there's there's also I'm like bouncing all over, but there's a there's two cops that are um, looking for this vigilante killer uh, cop and his partner. One's an Asian guy and one's an old white guy. And of course, they're they're on to Paul Kiersey because somebody's at the scene of a murder saw like a blue car that had the last four numbers of his uh license and they narrowed it down to like they said there's like 40 in la that had those last four numbers a blue i remember what town car of some kind and so they narrow it down and they they're suspicious of paul kiersey and they visit him at work and he's very hmm. much like you're bothering me don't leave me like leave me alone my my wife's dead um i'm an architect I was that night that these people died. I was doing this has nothing to do with me. Um, but they're still suspicious. Mm -hmm. And we find out later down the line that the Asian cop is actually dirty cop. Yes. And he's in on it on one of the gangs and he's, um, basically using the Intel of the police to track down Paul Kiersey. Um, which is to his demise as you would expect. Cause it's Paul and, he shows up at Paul's work and tries to kill him, and you don't kill Paul Kiersey. No, nope. he, he kills you. Um, there's some some crazy stuff. This is sort of like Miami Vice, like where these yeah. two two rival gangs are old adults. There's there's a really really bad scene where he makes a bomb out of a 
bottle of wine and he shows up at an Italian restaurant and there's three gangsters, including a much younger Danny Trejo. Yeah. He's has he's to be it. one of his early roles because, I mean, he's, he, I don't know if Danny Trejo was ever young, but he's, <laughs> uh, he looks like a baby compared to what he is now. Yeah, and he doesn't have a very big role. It was kind of for a second. It's like, wait, wait, is that is that guy back there? Is that is that Danny Trejo? And yeah, we got then, a good look at him. It's like that has to be Danny Trejo. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, those three guys go out to eat at this Italian restaurant. They're the only ones in the place because you know that's sort of um, an old stereotype of gangsters is that they get you know we've seen it in Goodfellas and all these old movies where these um, dudes get the whole Italian restaurant to themselves. And they're eating lunch, and Paul Kiersey walks in with these three bottles of wine that he he's pretending that he's a wine salesman. And he walks in and talks to the bartender and pours him a drink, and he asks if he can go over to the gangster's table and offer them a drink of his wine. But we saw him in the car earlier, and he had set that bottle up as a as something. He We don't really know at that time. I thought it was going to be like a camera or a microphone or something mm-hmm. so he could spy on him. He sets it down at the table, offers him free wine, and then Trejo's character recognizes him from probably that party where he was the bartender. Yeah. And he's like, I know you from somewhere. I know you from somewhere. And Kiersey's trying to talk his way out of it. And then Kiersey knows he's too deep in and there's no escaping. So he throws a glass of water in his face and runs and the bottle of wine explodes in a very bad scene that looks really fake. Yeah. <laughs> like is that's the part where clearly there were dummies before it set on fire. Um and the and the flames just take up like the whole screen so you don't have to see like an actual building explode or anything. Yeah. Gentlemen, it's your lucky day today. Bottle of wine on the house. Hey, not bad. Hey, don't I know you from someplace? I don't think so. Yeah. I know your face. Did you ever live in San Francisco? Uh, I'm from Idaho. Hey, I got a brother in Idaho. What city? Boise. Boise. I know you. I never forget a face. What the hell? Um, and of course, Paul escapes just in time, and they, the poor bartender and whoever else is waiter or whoever's working at the restaurant's mm. fucked now yeah casualties <clears throat> it will be casualties yeah and eventually like i said we find out that the guy that was in the house that hired him that wasn't actually his house he, he shows up at the house of the rich old man to confront him and he finds someone else in that house mm-hmm. and he's like that i'm the real guy you were talking to somebody else well he was like i've been gone for three months you didn't talk to anybody here but clear yeah so there was a big empty house and this guy was pretending to be like this millionaire that lived there yeah and he yeah and he basically yeah and he was setting up kiersey to sort of kill these gang members from the rival gang so the technically the rival gang was killing off other members but they had kiersey doing their dirty work there's just so many levels and layers of this yeah but <laughs> it's, it's confusing but it is great when they he, he sets them up at this oil field you know hey meet me at the oil field it's a mutual place and he's off in the distance on a hill with a gun with a silencer on it like a sniper gun 
and he waits for the tensions to get really high and shoots one of them. Yeah, everyone has their guns out, <laughs> and someone gets shot, and so they're just all shooting. Th- then yeah. everybody just opens fire on each other. Yeah, everybody's As dying. You would. Right, and so you know it's perfect for him. Like these guys are doing the job he was hired to do. They're killing each other, and um, genius. Yeah, and of course the big boss man of this whole movie, the the big baddie, he gets away temporarily uh he's the dude with like the longer dark hair um and he's sort of crawling away and uh you know kiersey's trying to shoot him uh with the scope and stuff and you know they set him up and and things get complicated again i'm trying to remember exactly even where it goes from there like they, they get like the driver oh i know what happens um eventually he gets arrested by these two police officers after oh, yeah. after he's you know, done some of these murders, he's driving home and he gets pulled over by two cops who find a gun in his waistband. They arrest him, put him in cuffs and put him in back seat. But then he realizes that he recognizes one of them as one of the gangsters. Yeah. So he kicks out. This is so stupid. He kicks the screen out. Yeah. Between the driver and the passenger or in the back seat and makes the car flip. And of course, you know, kills the two fake cops, but not him. He's not at all mm-hmm. harmed, not injured or anything. And gets out and goes after back after them. Um, it was just a minor inconvenience, pretty much for him, just being arrested. Yeah, it's like mm, I'm gonna make this fucking car crash and set on fire. <laughs> there's there's some there's a lot of scenes that I'm just now remembering too. There's a scene where he shows up at this place where they're um, he, he's pretending to be a worker, like an employee, and he shows up and he knocks out a bunch of poor employees at this place and ends up in the back room where they're stuffing giant tuna fish with cocaine. Oh, yeah. And he starts shooting them. Of course, there's a then there's like a hundred against one again, and mm-hmm. he somehow is not even grazed by a bullet. Um, he's using a Uzi that he snuck in a, with a lunchbox. And, of course, he catches some dudes on fire and, and explodes the whole place and drives away in a truck in a ridiculous action scene. Um, there's a scene where he shows up to a movie store a video store with like a theater in it and he goes into the back room where the guy is sort of packing drugs and it's coordinating and shoots him and a couple other people um there's there's a bunch of scenes that feel like they're tacked on to promote um canon films yes like like you said he he was in the uh, movie rental place and it was just movie posters everywhere yeah so uh, to cut down on the budget, the scene where Kiersey goes to the cinema to meet Nathan, which he was actually oh, meeting yeah, the old, he was eating meeting the old man that he thought was the one that hired him for to kill, um, which is the worst place to go and talk to somebody, meet somebody in a theater. It's very yeah, rude. I would hush the hell out of them. But um, that that theater that they use as a set was actually Canon Group's viewing theater, so they would like um, the executives and stuff. It was just like a room for their own personal use when they had new movies to watch and Hmm. like cut and edit and stuff um sounds fancy gail morgan hickman rewrote the entire script while filming Um, charles bronson constantly had problems with the dialogue and requested further rewrites of certain items of dialogue and action scenes hickman recalled going through several rewrites on a daily basis on this one um and going off that canon cue uh some of the music cues from 10 to midnight another canon movie were uh, used in this film 
the canon group wanted a more muscular sounding score for the action scenes, so they decided to reuse a lot of the music from its past action efforts, Missing in Action, which is a Chuck Norris movie, and Invasion USA, which is another Chuck Norris. So they were just reusing a lot of music during the action scenes. Um, this is the first one, I think, that Jimmy Page didn't do the music. Mm-hmm. Or no, Herbie Hancock did the first one. Jimmy Page did the second and third one. And now I don't even remember who did this one. Yeah. But uh, it was definitely not as good. There's a lot of weird editing in this one. Yeah. A lot of bad cuts and zooms and... There's a scene that ends up in a roller... The, the end sort of uh, goes into, like, a roller skating rink. They kidnap, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They kidnap his, his girl that we sort of forgot about, who's a reporter, and they drag her through a roller skating rink and, you know, basically lure him into the thing. Of course, just as anybody who dates Paul Kiersey, she gets shot up and dies. Yep. Um, the good cop comes after him thinking that he killed his partner, which he did, but Kiersey tries to explain to him, your cop, your partner was a dirty cop. He doesn't believe him. He wants to, still wants to kill Kiersey, uh, but Paul knocks him out because he doesn't want to kill him because he is a good cop. So he knocks him out and escapes. And then at the end, when he realizes that, like in the final scene where the good cop realizes that Kiersey isn't a bad guy, he sort of like lets him know, like, hey, I told you so, and then walks away, like leaves him there. He doesn't want to. He doesn't kill the good cop because he doesn't want to you know the good cop could not believe his partner was dirty but he proved to him that he was um there's just a lot of cool weird action scenes in this one um the video store where kiersey confronts some of the goons shows numerous posters and displays promoting other canon releases like field of honor the naked the naked face texas chainsaw massacre 2 um and the movie theater that they go to is showing Otello and Runaway Train, which are two other canon movies. Hmm. Um, this one, significantly larger budget, or not budget, but um, uh, amount of money, salary for uh, Charles Bronson. He was b- boosted up to $4 million, which is Ooh. almost the entire budget of the movie. So <laughs> they gave him $4 million and the, the movie didn't cost much more than that. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, the, the writer... Uh, Gail Morgan Hickman toyed with the idea of giving Paul a surrogate son named Eric to avoid repetition and having the character lose another daughter. Uh, he changed his mind and turned Eric to Erica because he felt that the death of a girl would be a stronger echo to the original loss of Kiersey's life. Hickman was also the father of a daughter and could better understand the trauma of losing a girl. And uh, in this movie... Uh, Bronson was 66. He's almost twice the age of his girlfriend in the movie. He was only 34, played by uh, Kay Lenz. So he was like almost double the age of his girlfriend. And yeah, then, I could tell. And then their daughter <laughs> was only um, 13 years younger than the mother. Hmm. But that's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I mean, not saying that like having a do- having a kid at 13 is reasonable, but the way females are especially this time portrayed in films and stuff like you would use younger or older actors to play like high schoolers and then younger women to play mothers. Like mm-hmm. they have this very, sm- wives. They, yeah. very small window. Like I've always sort of alluded to this, um, that in Halloween, like Annie Brackett is a high schooler. And then a few years later in, um, Halloween three, she's a mother. Yeah. And it's like, 
a few years, 78 to like 81. So it's not even, or no, 83. So not many years have passed, but suddenly she, it's like in Hollywood years, women are, especially in that now, it's still pretty rampant. I mean, they have actresses playing mothers to actors that are like the same age as them. Right. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's gotten slightly better, but, um, it's still pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, Marissa Tomei is um, Peter Parker's aunt, Aunt May, in uh-huh. the, the new Spider-Man movies. And she's like, looks like she could be Peter Parker's older sister. Mm-hmm. Like, she is, and, and she's talked about that openly, that she wished she hadn't started doing mom roles because now, like... She's stuck in it. Yeah, like, once you do it, Hollywood can't bring you back to anything else, and it's shitty. If you already aged that much, can't go back to being, like girlfriend or a young mother right yeah it's just sort of fucked up how that's done but that's how hollywood works i guess that's showbiz baby yeah so yeah death wish four um i prefer three just because it's more fun i think having him go after adults is sort of weird and it got overly complicated like yes it's no longer about revenge i mean they set it up like it's going to be because his sort of stepdaughter not quite mm-hmm. uh gets murdered at the beginning so we're like here we go again or she doesn't get murdered she's yeah. she dies from a drug overdose but the drugs were given to her by somebody and you know it was clearly premeditated and sort of he was that's what started prompted the whole thing you know he's always out but um again he's he's using the big guns um over the top ridiculous i think he does use like a rocket launcher again in this one yeah um at the very end to kill the guy who killed his girlfriend yeah he was like he shot up his girlfriend he's like i told you i was gonna do it and he just like boom just exploded him is this the one yeah this is the one that starts with the scene that's almost like a slasher right where the woman's walking yeah which that was yeah woman is walking to a parking garage or she's in a parking garage walking to her car and she gets in her car it's not starting she looks ahead of her there's like just one man standing and then she's trying to start a car looks back up there's two men standing she's trying to start up the car looks up three men staring at her and then they uh, um, are gone. And she's like, oh, oh, okay, they're gone. And then, boom, they pop up right around her car and smash her windows in. And they started to, like, rip off her clothes, which, like, pretty much every movie, a woman gets her clothes ripped off and raped. Um, so I thought that was going to happen, but, but it doesn't quite happen. Part three is the only one that doesn't show any breasts. Oh, Okay. I uh, did not notice that, but, um, then he shows up and, you know, kicking ass and shit. What what happens then? He like shoots, he kills two of them. And then the third one, he shoots in the knee and the shoulder and he's crawling away, closes the garage door on him, Mm -hmm. um, basically torturing him. The guy's begging for his life, begging for his life. And, uh, Paul has a like a quick flash in front of his eyes like a it's an image of him lying on the floor dead paul and then he snaps back into it and shoots 
the third guy he dies and then he wakes up and like yeah, a it, was just a it was just a dream just a dream but but yeah it's, it was definitely opening in like a slasher film which i wonder if that was just because of the time of the film where like slashers were a big thing and it was just but it, the whole scene makes sense that it was a dream because it was pretty like wild for for that kind of film like yeah and i remember and now i'm like remembering a lot of scenes that we forgot like at the end when they're in the parking garage um kiersey shows up you know in the car and they they set him up and they flash the lights on like a van like we're good to go come you're safe he drives in and and boom a van hits it they get out and they shoot up the car with like a million bullets oh, yeah yeah and of course it's so dumb because you can't, there's no one in the car you can clearly see that you yeah, think they he would just like put it in neutral right and just yeah. let it yeah and hit it and uh uses that to set them up uh, such a troll in this movie like... yeah he jumps out of hiding blows up white's van along with another car uh his accomplice escaped by going upstairs cutting through the roller rink he kills more thugs on his way through the roller rink you know shooting people left and right there's people getting knocked off their roller skates um yeah he goes to the back door uh that's the, that's when uh the bad main baddie shoots uh his girlfriend in the back tries to run he fires a grenade which blows the bad guy to bits um so that's when like the final scene where the good cop detective reiner shows up and orders kiersey to surrender threatening to shoot him if he doesn't but kiersey begins to walk away like do whatever you have to is what he says do whatever mm -hmm. you have to because he knows he's not going to shoot him yeah because he, he's a good cop and he knows that he knows now that he was just he was set up and he's killing the bad guys so uh there's like a slow, like a scene where he's slowly, the, while the credits roll, he's just walking away from the detective. And that's, he walks into the uh, sunset to live another day to... Yeah, uh, to find another girl. <laughs> right, to find a new girl to, to be murdered and for find new people to shoot and kill. Um, Hold it, Kersey. Put down the gun. Stop right there. God damn it, I'll shoot. Do whatever you have to. Yeah, so that's Death Wish for the Crackdown. There's uh, apparently that was the biggest home video release of the series. Like, they oh. sold the most VHS tapes of this one. I'm guessing. I don't know, probably because of the era. Like, you think in 87, they probably released it on VHS in 88 or so, because this was before you... I mean, there was rental stores, but it was yeah. before it was like everyone had every movie at their disposal. So yeah. um, it was probably, you know, that market is pretty big deal for home video at the time. It still is, but um, yeah, this one... Like I said, each movie feels like it goes down in quality a little bit, but at least with Death Wish 3, it's so ridiculous that it's fun. This one mm -hmm. is probably so far my least out of the favorite. Yeah, and kind of like you said, it feels like it was the script was written for, to be a different movie and then just kind of um, morphed into a Death Wish movie. Like, it's like, well, let's make a fourth one. What should we do this time? Well, we have this movie that 
you know yeah they've done that with with other franchises i think the franchise that i think has the most of those is the hellraiser series like whoever holds their rights they have to put out a new hellraiser movie every so often to keep the rights so they would just basically buy these screenplays that have nothing to do with hellraiser and throw pinhead into them somehow just to keep the franchise alive this one feels like that even though i have i've read the contrary that they wrote this as but i also read that at this point um canon was just getting tons and tons of screenplays and scripts written because everybody like every up-and-coming writer uh young aspiring writers really wanted to write a death wish movie like they had gotten this big following and they're like i know i have an idea for a death wish movie what if this happens or what if that happens it's probably really easy for somebody who's just starting out to write a death wish movie because they all sort of follow a formula that's pretty simple yeah. and they know canon is going to try to make the cheapest movie they can mm-hmm. so they're you know eager to hire young people or or just find a way to do it as cheaply as possible so you know they were just getting all kinds of, of screenplays in the mail because that's how they did it back then before email but um yeah it's interesting to think about that I'm excited what Death Wish 5 has has for me. Well, that's, yeah. I mean, it's it's not really a spoiler, but Death Wish 5 is the last one with uh, Paul Kiersey, mm-hmm. you know, Charles Bronson. Apparently, they were going to make a part six, but they decided not to because he's probably getting too old. Uh, yeah. De- Death Wish 5 is the first one to take place in the first and last one take place in the 90s two three and four took place in the 80s um and five will take place in the 90s so all right something to look forward to and then we're gonna also watch the eli roth bruce willis remake from 2018 and uh that will be our final episode on death wish yeah until they make more which, you think they're going to make more? They'll probably do either another reboot or something. They're mm-hmm. not going to do any more based on Bruce Willis's. That one I don't think did very well at the box office and yeah. critically was slammed. So, What if they make it into like a Netflix show or something? They could. They could. They can do whatever they want. Where but... every episode he has a new girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> she turns into like, it's kind of like a, almost like a joke. Yeah. <laughs> just a recurring joke yeah i mean it's crazy like we've we've gotten let's see like i think we're on five or six for the terminator series but those are wildly successful big blockbusters and they've um rebooted them and stuff and apparently this one was written as a direct sequel to two so like like i said in three we don't see that he's an architect and stuff and this one sort of ignores the fact that he went to new york and even did the events in three it's supposed to be Mm-hmm. almost following immediately after two so three sort of like the weird like outliner of this series where it doesn't you can almost watch it on its own if you have a general knowledge of the f- series and uh you don't have to watch the others really to to appreciate it so can we acknowledge the dog for a second <laughs> yeah he's been he, the dog's been sort of obnoxious on this podcast he we try to lock him out of the room and he- <laughs> And he's, he's cried at the door, scratched, try to break in. So I bring him in. Then he comes in, shakes off and coughs and licks himself and cries. He's the worst. There's nothing we can do with him. Um, it's hard for us to both record because he's such a spoiled brat. So 
Uh, yeah, the dog's staring at us while we record this. He's tilting his head. He's listening to the podcast. <laughs> he might be our biggest fan. But, um, at, yeah. At the beginning, Tad was trying to um, do the intro. <laughs> Tad gets like, like 10 seconds in and our dog buddy does this loud snort. <laughs> he had to start all over. Yeah, I had to record it like four times because... Uh, and then I kept laughing. Yeah, because then Nikki's laughing at the dog snorting, so... <laughs> They're the dynamic duo. I can't, I can't record around them anymore. Oh, man. Yeah. So, yeah. Just need your own little studio away from the house, maybe. No, I, it's, it's fine if you're if we're not both in here. If you're, yeah. out, if you're out with him to keep him company, he's fine. But he uh, is a spoiled brat, and he's not used to being on his own. So if he knows we're in a room, he wants to be there with us. Yeah, like he does not like um closed doors with one of us behind it he like that's for sure he doesn't like to be excluded from anything yeah he wants he, to be a part of everything i mean that's including like the bathroom door too like he does not like that door shut no privacy why you need privacy yeah so there's our little rant on buddy <laughs> so. he's watched the death wish movies with us uh he slept through all of them yep. he's not impressed not impressed I don't think he's ever been impressed with any movie, but no. no. The only time we've ever gotten a reaction out of him is <laughs> the MGM lion scared him at the beginning of a movie once. Yes. He was like right next to like the subwoofer. Woofer. Yeah, woofer. <laughs> the subwoofer. <laughs> yeah, we got the joke. You don't have to repeat it. Okay. Okay, well, um, we don't need to talk anymore about our dog or Death Wish for the crackdown so uh thanks again for listening thanks right. for jumping on of course we'll be back with part three of the death wish franchise i guess <sighs> episode three of three about death wish five and the remake or yeah 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 which is confusing that is part three but it's not about death wish part three because we're doing two a podcast but um we don't yeah. want to make them too long or too short so i figured these movies are pretty simple we can bang them out so I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> okay. Again, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye. On love you. Bye. First Time Podcast. Thank you for listening to the First Time Podcast. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the great podcasts. Thanks to Scott Schreiner of Weezer for our intro and outro music. And last but not least, remember to leave us a review. That's how we get listeners. So like, share, find us on social media, and let us know what you think. We'll see you next time on First Time Podcast.